Alright, you primitive screwheads, listen up. Oh my god, I smell shenanigan! I have no idea what's going on, but I am excited! Yeah, baby, yeah! Ever dance with the devil in the pale Inconceivable! Cowabunga! I thought this was a party! It's two Moskis and a podcast. With Eric and Jeff. Hardly ever missed. And that is Two Nerdskis in a Podcast, everybody. The one show where two Nerdskis come together and talk about everything pop culture and entertainment. Of course, as always, I'm one of your Nerdskis. This is Eric. And this is Jeff. And we have. This is an interesting one to say the least, but I guess before we go there, um, the, um, actually, where do I want to go from here? I'm kind of. I don't know. This is kind this is kind of like one of those movies that um so this is jeff's pick i just want to point out right off the bat and i have to say well done sir because this is definitely a fascinating movie i think in the grand scheme of things and i've been talking to um our buddy galen um from our highlander episode about this because um this involves a lot of guns and so um i was i was a little i was a little like apprehensive like what the hell we're talking about but then I actually watched it. I'm like, oh, this is nothing like what I thought about. Uh, this is actually an interesting movie. So um, without further ado, oh, <laughs> that's my own little burp there myself. But um, without further ado, this is the movie Targets from 1968, produced by the late. OK, he's not dead yet, but like produced by the great Roger Corman and directed by Peter Bogdanovich, who um, whose work I'm actually very familiar with. Uh, I haven't seen too much of his stuff, but I know about him because of his history with um, Orson Welles, and we can definitely touch upon that later if anyone, if anyone's curious. But yes, this is this was Jeff's pick, and um, I guess my question for you, Jeff, is like, so what made you choose this for your pick? So this was a movie that I always heard rumblings about but i just never got around to seeing it uh because growing up i was a big fan of the universal monster movies so naturally i was a fan of boris karloff and i heard that this was one of his final roles but i looked at uh similar trends of veteran uh veteran horror stars from the golden age and during the latter half of their careers they were unfortunately in a bunch of z-grade schlocky trash you know bell lugosi was plan nine from outer space and yeah i think i think lon cheney jr was dracula versus frankenstein a fucking terrible movie by all accounts and from what i heard boris karloff's last movie it uh it was technically released about two years after he passed away but he you know he still shot the footage uh was a movie called snake island i could be I could be totally getting that wrong, but uh, if only I looked a couple titles before that, because this was his uh, third final film. In all honesty, I just consider this his final film because this is a uh, I think it's a great swan song for for someone like Boris Karloff, uh, probably due to 
in a way, it feels like the character he's playing feels like a projection of Karloff himself. Mm. Uh, so, so the uh, the basic gist is that Boris Karloff plays an aging an aging horror star named uh, Byron Orlock, which is actually the name of the vampire that uh, Max Streck played in uh, 1922's Nosferatu. And essentially, he is completely burned out on on films, on appearances. Like, he's just sick of this shit. He's... And... He's uh, literally pulling the Danny Glover excuse from Lethal Weapon. I'm too old for this shit. Pretty much. And essentially what... Uh, what makes it inter- interesting is that there's, there's essentially two plots going on. And uh, so plot A is is Boris Karloff and just kind of reminiscing about his career. And what I thought was interesting is that uh, I'll, I'll get into the, uh, I'll, I'll get into some of the making of this movie a little later, but uh, part of it is reflecting on his career and how he essentially is no longer considered scary because of the real life horrors of the world. And I believe this movie came out, during the very end of the Vietnam uh, War, I uh, close. My mind... I would I would almost agree with that. And so essentially, a lot darker shit was going on, and that realm, that era of horror, was long dead. And and so so that's essentially plot A, and plot B is centered around this uh, this guy named I. Should have been better. Prepared. Bobby Thompson played Bobby by Thompson. Tim O'Kellen. I mean yes. Tim O'Kelly. Yes, and essentially his character is based off a real life incident that happened not too long, uh, not too long prior to the release of this movie. Charles Whitman, and if you don't know the story of Charles Whitman, he essentially was a a uh, not very good person who out of nowhere went to the top of a tower on I believe it was a Texas university university and, of Texas. Yeah. Yes. And just began sniping people at random and then took his own life. And so there's definitely reflections of, of that tragic incident and it's presented in a very dark yet, uh, in a very realistic manner that I did not expect a movie, you know, this low budget and produced by Roger Corman to really be, uh, be presented. And especially given the kind of work that Roger Corman's mainly known for, which are a lot of B like B movie level, like horror movies or science fiction movies. You never really kind of see this caliber of film coming from him. Oh yeah. No. Cause you, you essentially see, you normally associate Roger Corman with schlock oh, yeah. and, and that's, and that's no dig on, on Roger Corman. Like the man is a fucking legend, but a movie like this just seems so out of place when compared to, uh, to, you know, his normal body of work, because it's, it's not only a loving tribute to the legacy of Boris Karloff. It's also, it also tackles a lot of pretty, uh, pretty deep political issues that good social commentary for the time very very good social commentary for the time and it's it's not shoved in your face it uh 
and it's it's very subdued. It's a very smart script. It's it's very well acted, and the uh, I mean the actual sequences of the shootings taking place are very disturbing, and especially in the way that it's played out too. But we can definitely get into that. Yes, yes, I'm jumping a little ahead of myself. Uh, so a little behind the scenes context. So essentially, uh, Peter. Bogdanovich, I hope I pronounced that right. You got the name right. Yeah, you did. Uh, fuck yes. Uh, so essentially, <laughs> essentially, he bumped into Roger Corman at at a theater, and Corman uh, knew a little bit about his theater background and told and told him, "Hey, do you want to do you want to write and direct a picture?" And he said yes. And Corman said, "Perfect. Karloff owes me two days uh, two days worth of work, and you have access to uh, to my 1963 film, The Terror." And which was this uh, old fashioned gothic horror film. And and so essentially what uh, what uh, Bogdanovich tried to do was, you know, I was trying to figure out, OK, well, how do I work in all these different things, especially when I only, only have Karloff for a couple of days? And so he after uh, a few writing sessions, he figured, what if, what if I just made uh, Karloff in, you know, an actor kind of a real life reflection of himself and and actually what was uh, kind of interesting was that Karloff at the time was uh was very was getting pretty sick but uh but according to Bogdanovich himself Karloff never complained he was always a sincere gentleman and I completely believe it because I've you know I've heard nothing but great things about about Boris Karloff now, if you never heard of who Boris Karloff is, he is uh, one of horror's greatest film like monsters. Like he's, he's fucking um, Frankenstein. I, I'd yes, be he is Frankenstein, I'd be and no one's ever heard of him. And he's the Mummy. So he is. So he plays two of Universal's like greatest classic monsters. So already he's cemented in like film history as like one of the greatest actors of that genre. And here he plays. Here, it's actually a nice reflection since you're going off of it. Because um, what I like, it, what I like again, is essentially it's a horror, a horror movie star going up against the real monster, a normal human being with a with a nihilistic attitude and lots of guns. That sometimes the real monster, the real monsters of the world, are the ones that are not so obvious. It's not always black and white. It's the ones that you least expect the most. And those are people that look like Bobby played by Tim O'Kelly. So um, the way that the way I like the way the movie starts is basically. So uh, you mentioned Peter Bogdanovich uh, as the writer and director. He's also in the movie. He plays yes, Sammy. He, My, he plays Sammy Michaels. And I didn't realize he actually did acting too as well, because I guess he did act. He did. He's done some other roles. Um, and I've, I mainly known him more as just like the filmmaker. I've never really thought he did any acting but you know he, i mean he does an all right he does a pretty good job i mean nothing like too special but you know it's a good performance i like it but essentially so boris karloff's character byron byron orlock so he's he's like as jeff mentioned he's had enough he feels like he's not up to the world actually he has a really great quote that i i liked he said the world belongs to the young make way for them let them have it and that i thought was a really great quote because basically because yeah, he feels that he he's not up to par. 
He feels like the, everything's moving beyond him, beyond him by this point. Like so it, he's going to let he's like, going to let the new kids have it. Yeah, like like he's thinking my time is is over pretty much. And so meanwhile, you have so right across the street from the movie studio um, is a gun shop. And that's where we first meet Bobby, played by Tim O'Kelly. And Bobby seems like a regular average guy. Sure, he likes guns, but he he seems like a really chipper fella. He's like, you know, he's having a pleasant conversation. Actually, I was think I, I had notes. So considering that's the late 60s, it must have been really easy to purchase guns back then because he's like he's going in. He's in this gun shop and he's just like it's almost like he's buying like um, groceries or some some shit or what some shit or whatnot. Um, I, obviously, I've had a conversation with uh, some other with some friends who are more gun savvy and and i guess you know gun gun laws were still strict but not as strict as they were back then in terms of purchasing firearms and ammunition especially in california and so this movie so we mentioned so since this is um since this is the late 60s and this is about movie stars um this movie actually does take place in los angeles in the late 1960s and in the San Fernando Valley, which uh, I live in, this is where I currently live right now, and it's really weird to see my current living situation in the 1960s. So, and I'm not saying that it's clean or anything here, but it looked much cleaner in the 60s, and and that that's not taken into account all like all the smog and shit that was going on at the time. Cause I remember, cause so long story short, my mother and her side of the family are from Southern California. Like, um, I'm not going to say where in San Fernando Valley, but they're from the area and they have memories where you could not see, uh, like where, where the mountains were. And, um, these days, obviously it, the environment's quote unquote cleaner. So you can actually see the mountain ranges, uh, around you, but yeah, we couldn't, you couldn't see that back then. And I think you can actually see it, the mountain ranges in this movie, but yeah, it's just really weird to see how clean it was. Was my little side note, but yeah, so Bobby's buying these guns. He lives with his mom and his, he lives with his parents and, uh, his wife is also, also lives with him and their parents and his, his parents. And, you know, it seems like a nice family life. You could you see that he has he he is a gun enthusiast. Um, I guess he did. It looks like he did serve in the Vietnam War, um, and you know he looks like he's living a pretty good life. But it's when he goes to the gun, the, you know, a firing range or shooting range with his father, and he doesn't kill his father, but he takes aim at him, and then you realize, oh, Bobby's got issues. That like, scene legitimately put me on edge. That that like he has legit issues. Well, so well, well, I think what makes the character Bobby so interesting to to put it lightly is that for the most part he he's straight faced. You don't know what's going through this guy's head. He's so yeah. even when he's committing these heinous actions, he's so casual about everything. And I oh think yeah. And I think that's what makes him so terrifying. Like, and we can get to his fur. We can get to like his freeway. Um, yes, yes. His freeway sequence. But, I, but I, I want to. Yeah, we want to work away yeah, there. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that sequence. Oh, absolutely. I imagine you do. But yeah. So yeah, Bobby. Yeah, Bobby just seems like he he he's off. And then you really see he's off when he like 
his wife, uh, so his wife wakes up and he just shoots her and then he shoots his mom and then he shoots the grocery boy who helped out his mom and he, and he non-cash and he just, you know, he casually puts his wife back to bed, um, make sure his, his, uh, mother is, uh, not on the floor and, uh, the, the grocery boy, um, is also, uh, not on the floor. By the way, how the fuck did no one hear those gunshots? I guess gunshots were a common thing. No, th- that's not possible. I'm just saying like, I like, there's no way that, uh, the cops didn't show up at his place right away. Um, or did not show up like way later. Like some, someone had to have heard those gunshots, but the point is like, he not, he just casually like cleans up after himself, like nothing happened. And then you see like, he has this, he typed this note. This is back in the days when people had typewriters, everybody, not computers. Remember so he, hope. yep. Remember those things. So he has typed this note, um, in red ink, basically saying that when his wife wakes up, he's going to shoot her and then he's going to shoot his mother. And, uh, he never kills his father. He, he waits until his father is at work. Um, and it's, it's kind of odd. It would have been interesting if his father came back and like gave in some insight, but I think, I think it's really not that important because I mean, it's never, it's never fully explained why Bobby decides to just casually just start killing people. But I think that's part of, I think that's part of the reason why it works so well is because, you know, sometimes you don't need a reason. You just snap and that's it. I mean, like you could make the arguments that, you know, because he, uh, you know, he served in Vietnam. It could he suffered be... from PTSD of some sort. Yeah. And, you know, for all we know, that could be commentary on maybe how, how the soldiers were treated when they when they came back. Uh, but, but that's the thing. There's no definitive stance on it. You know, it it's all up to interpretation. And mm-hmm. again, I think that that's what makes the actions committed all the more terrifying because you don't have a definitive motive. No. And again, that cements to just how cra- just how fucking crazy um, he is. Um, <laughs> sorry, this is this really isn't no this really isn't a laughing matter. But yeah, it this the subject the subject matter itself is pretty messed up. But meanwhile, you have uh, Byron who's just he's had enough. I mean, like bless her soul, Jenny, her his assistant. You know, she's trying to like get him to do this and whatnot. And he's like, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to deal with anything. I just want to retire and live in peace for fuck's sake. He's, he's done. So like, you know, the studio wants him to go, wants him to go premiere, uh, be at the premiere of this movie, the terror that, that he's, or his new movie, but which is really like clips from the terror that, uh, Jeff pointed out earlier. And so he's just, he, he has no, he really has no interest and uh, just being at the premiere, he just, again, he just wants to sit in his hotel, uh, drink wine or whatnot, and live peace- peacefully and die of old age and whatnot. Yeah, he wants nothing to do with anything else. That he, Like, he is done with that life. And it takes a lot of persuasion from Sammy. And arguably a pretty hilarious sequence where, like, Sammy just shows up drunk. And he's very impassioned. And he's just like, Byron... I want you to come to this fucking premiere. I mean, he's not swearing, but like he wants him to come to this premiere and he's, he's just, you know, you know, I, I really want you to come, you know, this, this is a really great, this is a really great opportunity. And, you know, the fans want to see, you know, if you're going to go on this last hurrah, why don't you let the fans see you one last time? How about that? And eventually he caves and they decide and, you know, 
Sammy's really drunk. And so he's like, he's going to go sleep on the floor he, or he's about to fall asleep on the floor. And so instead uh, they share the same bed. Um, no, they don't sleep together, <laughs> but, um, but it's honestly, it's a really nice, neat moment between uh, Byron and Sammy because it's, because it's showing that, you know, Bor, um, I was about to say Boris, it's still basically he's playing a, a fictionalized version of himself. He's just, you know, he's just done. He, he has no interest in, in his work in his work anymore but you know if he's gonna go he decides ah fuck it i'll show up to this one event like how eventful could it be little do you know byron little do you know (laughs) um what i what i wanted to touch upon real quickly is kind of bogdanovich's uh history so i mentioned i i mentioned bogdanovich and um, Bogdan, Peter Bogdanovich is really the way I know him is mainly, like I said, through his involvement with Orson Welles. And, um, actually, so when I actually saw Jeff as of this recording, it was last week when I saw Jeff, when I was back home in Northern California, we we're talking about the movie, uh, the other side of the wind, which is this movie that took 48 years to make. Um, so it like it, they shot in the seventies and then like it finally was released after all these like legal battles or whatnot released uh, by released onto Netflix in 2017 or was it 2018? It was definitely one of those two years. And uh, it, it's basically we, and I actually would like to go over this movie for the show. Cause I think it's really worth talking, let alone for just the production history behind it. But um, it's essentially about um, it's almost like a biographical movie about this, like, um, a filmmaker played by our, I think it's a Charlton Heston. No, not Charlton Heston, Charles Houston. <sighs> Fuck, what was his name? I'll have to remember it, but, um, it's, it's almost biographical since it is like Orson Welles is one of Orson Welles like last movies. Um, but I would really, I, again, I would like to go at it at some point, but yeah. So I was really surprised that Peter Bogdanovich, um, was the director behind this. And I have to say he does a really good job because here's one thing I I would like to note. Um, At no point in the movie, is there an actual film score? And I think that really adds to the tension of this movie. Absolutely. Are we, uh, are we officially at the tower scene? Um, I guess we could go into it, but what I wanted to go in before and, um, Oh, I guess we could save that later. Cause I wanted to talk about the actual movie um, that Boris Karloff talks about, but I guess we can we can wait to that later. But yeah, so after he has nonchalantly murdered his uh, family, minus his father, Bobby decides he's going to grab all his guns. He's going to go to the top of a water tower over looking over a freeway. And uh, yeah, he sets up his guns. And, yeah, no, he's got a nice little soda pop. And he's like, takes a bite from a sandwich. And then he takes aim. And it's almost, it reminds me of that. This is fucked up from me, but like it reminds me, this is the dark humor in me, but like it reminds me of that YouTube video, like in the early days of YouTube where this guy was like playing like that spec ops, like, or like SWAT video game. We're just going like, boom, headshot, boom, headshot, boom, headshot. And I don't know why I was thinking that, but again, that's the fucked up side of me. But I imagine someone would take that clip and just like overplay clips of that part. But no, in all seriousness, yeah, he just... Yeah, um, Bobby just takes aim and just starts shooting like and he he misses like one car. Um, he fires a couple times, but like he he pretty for the most part, he is not missing those shots. And then like 
you can kind of see that Bobby's a little kind of careless because that because um, he does drop some guns. Uh, he he lets his soda bottle like fall to the ground and break. And then like this guy who's an attendant at the at the water facility um, walks up. He's like, dude, what are you doing? Bobby just casually shoots him. And then and then like Bobby, like quickly grabs the stuff. He drops a few guns. So, yeah, he's definitely not the most prepared shooter. I will say that much. But uh, but he does escape from the cops. But uh, that's the overall summary of it. But why don't you take over from here, Jeff? Well, so what I what I really wanted to touch on was what I think makes this uh, a really effective sequence is, for one, the lack of music. And two, the fact that you're always it's always from his perspective. You see him opening fire on all these random civilians in their cars. Uh, they're just driving. Uh, they're just driving down the freeway, but you don't see any of their reactions, and so it creates this cold, distant sensation, where it uh, or you almost have to imagine what uh, uh, what the civilians getting fired at are experiencing. And you can't even hear their screams in the distance. And uh, cause I know they had to film this sequence very guerrilla style. And, uh, and like knowing they, Roger Corman, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But, but it's one of those things where it it made it a better sequence, like all around. Uh, and uh, especially, uh, especially the sequence that follows during the climax, it, uh, if it was presented in the exact same way, it may have gotten a little redundant. So the fact that the two primary shootouts in this movie have their own, are very effective in their own unique fashion, I think elevates the quality of the movie overall. And what I think again, makes it so disturbing is the fact that he is just so fucking casual, just acting like it's uh, like, it's a normal like a like a normal afternoon, you know, just sipping a soda pop and taking them taking a bite of that sandwich, and just has no remorse for the lives that he's taking. And very nihilistic in his approach, like he just does not care. Like he just he's like to him, everyone is a target, and he's basically going to shoot at that target, and he is not going to miss. What no matter how hard he no matter how hard he tries, like he is, he has made it his mission to basically murder everyone, murder as many people as possible. Like when, if you remember the note, he says, cause I actually, I have the poster. So the poster on Wikipedia actually has part of the quote that he wrote. He goes, I just killed my wife and my mother. I know they'll get me, but before that many more will die. Like this man has made it his mission to kill as many people as possible. You never understand why he does it. But it does again. It doesn't really matter because what matters is there's a maniac on the loose with a lot of bullets, a lot of guns, and he's going to take out as many people as possible. Because why the hell not? Well, plus I think um, what uh, what I think uh, makes the sequence a little more interesting too is it feels like it takes place in real time because it it's it's a good few minutes before the police even show up. So it. Uh, like the, the way it plays out and uh, I don't know, it, it, it feels uh, it feels so authentic and and again, like fucking Roger Corman production. 
Oh man, and it's and it's pro- and it's probably the most Oscar worthy movie in his pro his entire catalog. Probably it. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Because again, if you again, when you think about Roger Corman movies, see, I'm thinking about um, Carnosaur, uh, Piranha. You're thinking about Death Race 2000. You're thinking about the uh, never released, never officially released Fantastic Four movie that he produced. Um, yeah, these are all movies of like pure B movie schlock. And then here you have a movie that is thrilling, um, has a lot of has a lot of um, tension to it, has all the elements of potentially an Oscar worthy movie. It, it It's not, but still like it definitely could be. Um, well, plus but, like the, well, well, the the entire foundation of this movie was built on. Hey, I have Boris Karloff for a couple of days. Come up with something. And Bogdanovich pretty much built the foundation from there. And he was the one who implemented those real life parallels with, uh, you know, with that uh, with that school shooting and, you know, elements of the of the Vietnam War. And so it was really his uh, it was really his his really good writing that elevated the material of, of this movie because uh, Karloff worked with Roger Corman on many projects during, uh, during the, uh, during the sixties. And some of them aren't very good uh, from what, from what I've heard, I, I still need to watch some of them, but uh, this probably this, would be the best one under his belt. Then, well, you know, absolutely. But the, but the way this, uh, well, actually, cause, uh, cause the terror was, was actually made in a somewhat similar fashion where uh, where that movie essentially re- reused all the all the sets from uh, from the Raven, I believe. And they essentially had Karloff for two or three days. And the, the plan was shoot his scenes right then and there and just make the rest up later. And so somewhat uh, and the movie just turned out to be this giant fucking mess that made no sense and targets almost be uh kind of be was almost became that because it was a it was a similar in a similar origin uh of production and but i think that really ties back to the talents of bogdanovich being able to elevate the material i was about to say it probably it probably you say that this movie almost had the same uh production horror nightmare as the terror it's probably because of someone like Bogdanovich, because I think this was his first f- true official feature link, from what I recall. Yes, yes. It so, was. so it sounded like because of Bogdanovich, this movie actually turned out to be pretty good. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, because uh, even initially, it uh, it was just going to be it was going to go through the standard. Uh, Roger Corman release, you know, probably just should be shown at a few drive-ins and hopefully make uh, make the money back. But it was actually distributed by Paramount because they were very impressed with the film itself, which doesn't really happen with with uh, Roger Corman movies. Yeah, I saw this was uh this was Paramount Productions. This yeah, there's a Paramount Pictures movie, and uh, yeah, they gave. Um, I'm reading here that. Um, um, Paramount Pictures bought it for well, it was Robert Evans of Paramount Pictures bought it for 150 grand, gave Corman an instant profit on the movie before it was even released. 
So yeah, um, he, he they knew what they were doing. That much is for sure. But um, yeah, I was just seeing here, um, even though the film was written in, pro- in production photography completed in late 67, it was not released until after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy in the spring of 1968, because those were very topical assassinations and having a movie pretty close to home around that point was probably not a good thing. Kind of reminds me of that movie that came out. Oh, that what was that name? What was that movie with Hillary Swank that recently came out maybe like last year or a couple years oh, ago? Uh, I'm blanking on the name. I'm blanking on the name too, but basically that movie was supposed to come out at a certain point, And then you like had all those school shootings that went on at the time. Um, so to release it during that time would have been, would have seemed very um, inconsiderate, very disrespectful, really in poor taste, probably would have killed the movie's box office. Um, well, well, this was also like a pre social media age. So yeah, that too. But even so- then, but even then a movie, it's still a movie about, it's still a movie about a mass murderer. Well, well, you can still, you know, make the, uh, you know, make the, you know, form the discussion about the, the efficacy, but, but obviously like pre social media, it's harder for that message to, to spread, you know, because sometimes people just want to go see a movie to escape the world. And, you know, they, they probably don't know much about a movie like this going in. And then when they watch Mm -hmm. it, it takes them off guard. Yeah, and again, this is because this is again, this is a movie that you know you said you, we probably said this before. You know, a lot of like modern movies, you know, a lot of a lot of movies, cinema is meant to be escapism, and a lot of people don't like it when movies ref, are reflections of the time. And uh, considering what was going on at the time, it's surprising that this movie. I mean, again, no social media, but still, like, I'm surprised that this movie got away with it's subject matter now that we're really thinking about it, really discussing this. Uh, that's actually quite surprising actually in retrospect, but I mean, it's, it, it's still good. Um, there's nothing, there's no real bad things to say about it. Cause it is a good commentary because again, the idea of the horse. So I have here, um, the Wikipedia article, like the idea of Orlock, Byron Orlock, the old-fashioned traditional screen monster who always obeyed the rules, confronting the new realistic, nihilistic late 1960s monster in the shape of a clean-cut, unassuming multiple murderer or mass murderer, uh, a sniper just randomly shooting people because why not? So, again, that's, again, sometimes... I mean, you don't want your movies to be too reflective of the times, but, you know, sometimes a movie like this helps really put life into perspective, especially with the subject matter like this. And especially since we live in a day age where, like, almost every day in America, you hear about a shooting going on and you're, you're often you're often wondering, like, when is it ever going to end? And so it's surprisingly relevant how this movie still is today. Well, I think uh, I think something also worth mentioning is that, you know, just the, uh, you know, the whole gun violence element is just one portion of of the movie because there's a lot more under the surface because in a way it's also it's also like a, it's like a farewell from Boris Karloff. That too. And and so there's there's the whole implication of, you know, of his contributions to the horror genre 
and how you know how this movie you know complete that's a total total uh total shift from what we're familiar seeing him in and you know because we you know because we know frankenstein is not real life we know the mummy is not real life like any of those movies that he's most famous for it's not real life and it was terrifying to audiences back in the 30s and 40s but well, you could audi- sleep soundly at night knowing that you know something like that doesn't really exist but as audiences matured uh you know because by the by the time the 50s rolled around you know it was uh it was the fear of uh of th- that was the atomic age and so that's when you had creatures like uh you know like Godzilla and and the uh what the fuck's the name of it uh you say like, uh, well, like I'm not just trying to like reference a, a Japanese, you know, because you had all those, uh, you know, giant insect movies like Tarantula. Oh yeah, uh, you know, so Back of the Fifty Foot Woman. Also, yeah, like all, 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 like an entire genre of, of movies like that, and and then by the '60s, you, uh, that's when it, uh, it was kind of a more return to gothic horror, but, mm-hmm. but then in the late '60s to early '70s that's when movies started kind of having their shift to telling more grounded, realistic stories that were kind of reflecting the dark times that were happening. Not, not just in the U S but around the world at the time. Cause you know, that was like pretty sure that was during the cold war and uh, you, you, Vietnam war and everything. And, and so, and I think, uh, you know, because even into the seventies, you know, all the most, uh, you know, most popular movies were primarily gritty crime dramas. And then it was, we have entered that time of po- that point in cinema where crime dramas were really picking up then were they? Yeah, it, exactly. And, and then when star Wars comes out, then that kind of, that kind of shifts everything. Yeah. Uh, to the science fiction era. It, exactly. So it. um, uh, so Karloff was really a part of like that transition into that new era. Well, that's a pretty good point. Well, well, not only that, it's the fact that he was a part of like three generations of horror, you know? Yeah, the, he was, wasn't he classic atomic. And then, uh, the, uh, some of the Roger Corman, uh, productions he was in were based off, Ed- were based off the works of Edgar Allan Poe. So, that gothic horror you know he was he was acting alongside vincent price and and so with uh so with all those and then uh having him be in a movie like this that was one of the first to really tackle that those rough subjects in a in a straightforward manner that really didn't didn't bullshit around it just kind of yeah it it didn't it didn't fuck around no, it didn't, didn't it? Yeah. And so, and so having, so having this being the real swan song to Boris Karloff, it, uh, I think that makes the movie all the more important. And I think makes it more interesting to look back on because, you know, when you first hear about it, you, uh, you, you, you see Boris Karloff's in it and you think, okay, it's one of his last movies. Like, I'll, I'll see what this is. But, when you watch it, it gives you a lot more than what you initially bargained for. And I think this is one of the most 
fascinating movies that I've seen in uh, in quite a while because I think the sign of a good movie to me is when you want to dive deeper into uh, into the the themes, into the history of the production. Uh, you want to rewatch it right away, you know, because. Because I mean, I remember when I was younger, I I could watch, I could rewatch movies like day in and day out. But now that when you get older, you know your time is a lot more constrained, and you don't watch rewatch movies as often as as you did when you were younger. But a movie like this that really captures your attention, it makes you just want to really dive deep and analyze, uh, analyze the hell out of it, and the fact that this this movie offers so much to go over and it's this underrated because I hardly hear this movie brought up at all. Cause I mean, I, I remember when, when I first said, this is my pick, you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yes. That was, that, that was my reaction. And then I, and then I looked into it and I saw that because usually when you think of Boris Karloff, cause I saw Boris Karloff was in this, I'm like, Oh, so this is some sort of like old school horror movie. I was like, ah, do I really want to watch this? And then I saw that this was a crime thriller and uh, and I saw that it was a Roger Corman thing, a picture of all things. So I think the crime thriller thing alone already hooked me because I like so crime thrillers, crime dramas. That's kind of my shit, too. Like, I mean, number one, action, action movies are my thing, um, mainly martial arts stuff in recent years. You can also probably say that superheroes are part of the action genre because they I mean, like, well, to be fair, like there are multiple like comic book movies that fit all genres. Like there's drama, psychological thrillers like Joker, um, horror movies like New Mutants. But but that's besides the point. The point is, is um, a crime through a crime thriller like this is fascinating because I because, um, again, it's Boris Karloff, a traditional horror film actor going up against the real monster a, a more realistic monster again a mass murdering sniper and that's more realistic than let's say uh, frankenstein or uh, dracula or the invisible man although it's possible who knows what could happen these days <laughs> i'm i'm just being brutally honest but um so eventually the the two stories collide and it's at the Reseda Drive-In Theater. And um, I actually, so I know some people who actually, um, I know a certain someone of ours who, a certain friend of ours who parent, whose parents actually are from the area. And like they told me, because I said this was this drive-in theater. I mentioned it was the Reseda Drive-In Theater. I said it was off Reseda and Hart. Um, <laughs> excuse me, sorry. <laughs> and um, very unprofessional. And uh uh, I, that's not far for me, so I plan on checking that out. But the st- way the story converges, so uh, I mentioned we mentioned earlier. So um, Boris Car, Boris Carl Byron's final movie is going to be playing at this drive-in theater, and so um, he's going to make an appearance. Meanwhile, you know, Bobby has escaped from the cops, and he's decided um, he's going to find another target, and so he decides, hey, to drive-in movie theater. Everyone's gonna be busy watching the movie, so no one's really gonna pay attention to all the all the gunshots that are happening, are they? So he, yeah, he takes aim, and like he, so he he takes he he gets a ticket, parks, 
and he takes his guns and he finds a hole in the projector screen and he just starts firing and chaos just ensues. So actually a couple things I wanted to mention. Uh, so first off, random piece of trivia. Yeah, guess go ahead. Who play, guess who plays the box office attendant? Uh, Mike Farrell? No. Future producer, Frank Marshall. Frank Marshall. What is he, I know that name's familiar, but what has he done? He's, he, he produced... Uh, he's produced Jurassic Park. He produced uh, you know, a bunch of Shyamalan's early movies. Uh, he, like okay. he's tons of Spielberg movies. Yeah, he, he's one of the most. Uh, he's one of the biggest producers in Hollywood. So really interesting to see him in a in a you know in a movie like this during. You often forget. Years. You sorry. You often sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but you often forget that Roger Corman helped like start many people's careers. Countless. Like, Fucking um, let me just so right off so we mentioned the terror which are clips of the movie that boris karloff is in or his character is in that movie has jack nicholson and i believe he's actually in the clips that are used in the movie itself um james cameron uh did um matte paintings for him uh based actually when uh john carpenter did escape from new york uh, he asked Roger Corman if he could borrow some of his guys, and James Cameron actually did some of the mad paintings for uh, Manhattan for that movie. Um, Sly Stallone was in Death Race Two Thousand, as well as David Carradine. Uh, that Kung movie's Fu. that movie's fucking amazing, by the way. I've I've yet to watch it, but I've heard nothing but ridiculous good things about it. It is um, pure exploitation gold. Who else? Who else has Roger Corman like helped basically create? Because uh, again, the list is massive. Well, because I know he. Uh, I'm pretty sure he gave Ron Howard his first uh, directing gig. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. And I think uh, I know. I know there. I know there's a ton of others. And I'm, oh I'm yeah, like, there's like yeah. yeah this man right is now. responsible. Yeah, this man. I mean, like, even though his movies are schlock, sometimes you have to start from the bottom. A lot of these people start from the bottom. So well, he, uh, well, in terms of uh, uh, directors, you know, he, uh, uh, you know, he he gave uh, Joe Dante uh, one of my favorite directors. Oh, really, Joe yeah, Dante. Yeah, he, uh, he he directed Piranha. And what did Joe Dante? And what is Joe Dante most known for these days? Uh, Gremlins. He did uh, yeah. uh, the underrated masterpiece small soldiers <laughs> <laughs> and uh and let's see and, uh, <laughs> yeah what is it good for oh commandos attack <laughs> we're talking small soldiers someday um uh, let's see but uh, but something like, i really but something i wanted to mention also is uh what i what i found really interesting is you know this movie's very low budget very guerrilla style and when uh 130,000 I think or is yeah. the estimate. And uh so when they were sh- when they were shooting the drive-in sequence, it uh that was pretty much raw footage. So what you're seeing is basically you know just this authentic 60s drive-in footage and in very good quality. And so I always and being that it's uh that's a movie so grounded in reality I, I think it's a really interesting little time capsule to uh, to look back on, uh, just to see, uh, you know, because even the even the scenes with the uh, with the projectionist, I think that uh, that was the real projectionist at the theater. 
You think so? Uh, no, I, it, it it was. Oh, uh, you think? So? Oh, you. Uh, well, hmm. well, yeah, because uh, uh, yeah, uh, Bogdanovich uh, can confirm that in um uh, in a little documentary he did for the movie. Uh, ah. Yeah, so that uh, and so you know that was the. So real the projectionist point. agreed to get shot on screen. <laughs> yes, he did. Ah, uh, that's a yeah, trooper well, right there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so you know so so that's the real room that uh, that you know that he was working in, and so it's, and it is uh, a projection. It is a projection booth, that's for sure. Like that is an actual drive-in theater that they're shooting at. Oh no, literally. absolutely. And so, uh, so I don't know. Like I, I found I just found that really interesting that uh, that you're able to see just such a you know not a not a fluffed up Hollywood version of. Uh, of events like that in the sixties, it's, uh, it's pretty much just, you know, Hey, come on down where we're shooting this cheap little, uh, cheap little movie. Uh, just bring your car, uh, bring your kids, bring your own wardrobe, just whatever. And it's, uh, and I don't know. I, I, I like when movies are able to be little, uh, time capsules like that. Yeah. He j- yeah. So you're basically, so basically you're just like, Hey, show up, bring your own wardrobe. If you want to bring your kids, go ahead. Just show up and we'll do the work from there. Like that's, I, that's I pretty will, admirable. I, I will say one of the, uh, one of the most disturbing shots, uh, uh, during throughout this whole sequence was, uh, just as you, you see the shot of, of a kid in the, Oh in yeah. The just camera, imagine the just mm. cameras pants over and you see that the, his dad was gunned down. Uh. And, and that would that that has to that had to been a really difficult like moment. I mean, cause, oh, just imagine because like obviously obviously that kid's not important to the movie, but you just have to imagine just how terrified and how traumatized he is that is that he saw his father die in front well, of that. Well, of throughout that throughout that whole sequence, it does a really good job at putting you into into the perspective of uh, you know of these people that just they just wanted to go see a movie, mm-hmm. and they. Uh, you know, like it takes them a while to, to figure out what's even going on. Like, like the first guy to get taken out is it's just in a phone booth. It takes them a while for someone to even, you know, stumble upon them and find out what's going on. And before people start figuring it out, probably like five plus people have already been gunned down. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, then they have to all get the hell out of there. And so there's that whole chaos going on. Then the theater staff has to find out what's going on. Then they're being they shot go to the projection at- booth. They go yep. to the projection booth, and, and then the guy's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, it's just this. It's just this very well done, gradual escalation of events. And Bog and Bogdanovich was also the editor of the movie, and he he did a phenomenal job because it's very tight. I do like the editing of this movie quite a bit. Yeah. And especially uh, since I am, especially since my en- emphasis when I went to film school is editing, like I really appreciate the pacing that's put into this. It's, and so, yeah, this is really good tight editing that's done for this. Um, what else were you going to say? I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to do that. Um, <laughs> well, I guess why you're, I guess why you're regathering that. So basically as the chaos is going on, Boris, Boris again, Byron shows up with his assistant. I always call him Boris. <laughs> well, Byron shows up to the premiere with his assistant. Jenny doesn't get shot, but she doesn't die. Um, a, bullet, a bullet grazes Byron, but he's all right. Um, but he's just like, he sees where the shooter is. He sees where Bobby is. And he basically, he just, com- so Bobby, unfortunately, has dropped some, 
unfortunately for him, fortunately for the rest of uh, the theater crowd, like he has dropped some of his ammo and his guns. And so he's like desperate to try and like get some firearms back so he can continue his uh, shooting spree. And so Byron gets to him, knocks a gun out of his hand with his cane. And then the ultimate. So I wrote down Boris Karloff's ultimate uh, finishing technique, smacking a bitch. Yep. Uh, I, I will say, I wish that was, uh, I wish that was shot a little better, but, but again, like they, they had Karloff for, for only two days. And also like, and also like it, Karloff is, how old was Karloff when he died? Um, I want to say like early to mid seventies, I want to say, but. Uh, okay. But- so you're not expecting Karloff to like bright hook the guy easily. No, so- no. But, so, uh, so just an average smack will do just fine. Yeah, um, no. Well, I think it's I think it's also the fact that uh, I think he was battling uh, emphysema during uh, during the making of this movie, so he was having a difficult time breathing, speaking or whatnot. Yeah. And so what I what I like is that after he's defeated Bobby, Byron just looks down at him and goes, "That's what I was afraid of," and uh, he just walks away, and that's the last we see of Byron. Um, uh, Bobby is a, Bobby is taken into custody and he goes, um, I hardly ever missed. And, uh, so how, what I love is the final shot of the movie. So oh it's God, the next, it's brilliant. the next day. It's the next day. It's just an overhead wide shot of the drive-in theater. And it's the only car there is Bobby's car. Um, it, and it, that's when the credits roll. It's so simple, but after everything that just happened, it's, so fucking haunting again we'll never again you'll never officially know why he snaps but again that builds to the tension of it and so i'm just gonna say it right now this is an underrated masterpiece of filmmaking um especially on a budget of this caliber especially on a budget of this caliber the editing is really tight and it's really well edited and paced so like one of my favorite editing bits is when is the build up to uh, Bobby shooting his wife and his mother. So like his wife walks in, you get quick cutbacks to uh, between Bob uh, between Bobby's holding that Colt M nineteen eleven and uh, his wife walking in and just like she comes up to him, the guns up to her up to her chest and he just pulls the trigger. She falls back dead. And, um, and then his mother walks in and just, he just starts shooting and, uh, it's quite intense, especially the PO and the, uh, and the POV shot of Bobby taking aim at his father, the, one of the first signs that something's wrong with Bobby, really good cinematography too there. Um, and again, just the way the, just the way the sequence is edited of Bobby, just casually shooting people from that tower, really kind of messed very messed up but very again very well done in terms of uh cinematography and editing um i would performances oh sorry go ahead i was just saying performances wise you know it's not like they they're not all they're not it's not oscar worthy but they're good performances and again specifically and i say this because again when you think about the caliber of work that roger corbin has put out all b-movie schlock and this is the one like this is the one movie that could have that um that the academy probably would looked at if they looked at all of his work they would have said 
this movie, um, we would have maybe given this some attention for an Oscar. Um, and that's saying a lot coming from me. Well, I think also what, uh, I think as someone who gives a really solid performance is Tim O'Kelly as, as Bobby. And it's kind of, especially when he doesn't speak. Yeah. It's kind of surprising because he didn't really act again after, uh, after this movie. I think he died in 1990. He died Uh, pretty young. I think, um, yeah, let me see how old he was. Let me double check. Yeah. He was, um, let's see. He 48 years old when he died. Um, I guess he, I guess he died of, uh, cardiomyopathy, cardiomyopathy. Um, it's a kind of heart disease, um, Uh. I guess. So, but yeah, that's, yeah, because he did. Yeah, I'm seeing his filmography here. So he did like he did a couple looks like some movies, maybe like he did like a Western, the Big Valley. He did Cimarron Strip, which is on. He did a couple Westerns. So and then afterwards, he did like an episode of the original Hawaii Five O, and he also did an original episode. He also did a movie called The Grasshopper. And that's and that was in 1970. So that his last project was in 1970. So, yeah, he he did. He didn't really. Do a lot, but I have to say, like, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, when the when the when you think about acting, you think about great dialogue. Um, you don't really think about the moments where the actor isn't speaking. And sometimes when the actor isn't speaking, you get some of the best performances. And uh, right. And I would say Tim definitely delivers when he's not like he's I mean, he's delivering his his dialogue delivery is good. You know, it, it's not, I mean, it's not like Oscar worthy, but again, it's definitely, it's definitely good quality acting. But when he's definitely, when he's definitely giving those, like when he's definitely, when he's doing the blocking, that's where his acting really shines. Oh yeah. Well, plus, you know, the fact that, you know, the fact that he's committing these heinous crimes and is completely straight faced about it. That's disturbing. It's really mm-hmm. disturbing. Oh and, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, and yeah, like uh, like you were saying, I I agree. I think this movie is an underrated masterpiece. I I think the I definitely think that you know anyone interested in in the filmmaking and storytelling definitely needs to check this movie out. And it's it's a fucking shame that the DVD has been out of print for a number number of years like you can still get it on a on a few streaming services for you know you could rent it for for a couple of bucks but the fact that a movie this good is out of print on physical media i think is a fucking shame so i hope that someone like shout factory picks this movie up and gives it a really good release like a really good restoration because i think a new generation needs to rediscover this movie and really like really start to dive in because this this is one of those movies that deserves to be that deserves to be uh analyzed because there's like a it's there's there's a lot of layers to uh to the way this movie was constructed and uh bogdanovich really did deliver a fantastic film well i think that speaks to the i was going to say the definition but i guess the testament of the subject matter because um, even though this is the sixties um, it was probably most likely inspired by the actions of uh, Charles Whitman and the university of Texas tower shootings 
1966, uh, considering the environment we live in right now, where, like I said, there's like a shooting in America, like almost every day, like this movie is definitely speaking volumes from like several decades past. And um, a movie like this is definitely a haunting reminder of like things to, of like what kind of world we live in at the moment where anyone can snap and fire a gun. Yeah. And it could, and the fact that it could come from the least suspecting person. Yeah. Not every terrorist, uh, not every terrorist or shooter or mass murderer is obvious. You know, the world isn't, the world is not as black and light, black and white, light, black and white. It's not as black and white as it looks. Sometimes it's very gray how the world looks at times, but yeah. So, uh, it is a high, solid recommendation for us, Targets. Um, definitely check it out uh, anywhere you can. Um, I think this is definitely a movie worth watching. And again, the subject matter is definitely worth discussing. And there's a lot to dive into this movie as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we're. So, I mean, despite, you know, being from the late 60s and being very low budget, I don't think a fucking thing about this movie dates it. No, because like, it, again, it's very relevant to even by today's standards. Yeah, I mean, not even just the, the subject matter. It's, uh, you know, just the, the overall entertainment value, mm. the, uh, the the craftsmanship behind it. It's it's a very well-constructed thriller. Again, who would have thought that this movie would be, would have been made, produced by Roger fucking Corman, B-movie schlock king, um wow what what, that's impressive but um i guess that's gonna do it for this one folks uh so we'd like to thank you for listening to this fine installment of two nerds so uh be sure to follow the show at uh tnapcast on instagram that's t-n-a-a-p-c-a-s-t be sure to subscribe to the youtube channel uh leave a like and comment on any one of the videos you watch Leave some suggestions because that um, those will be very helpful. If you follow the show on Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe and also leave a nice little review. Definitely helps with the algorithm. And then, of course, uh, if you have Spotify, definitely uh, ring the bell or turn on bell notifications so that you know that you get new episodes every Friday and Saturday specials on Saturdays. So um, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Um, this has been Targets. Uh, an underrated an underrated masterpiece from Roger fucking Corman and Peter Bogdanovich and a lovely send off an epic an epic I guess yeah an epic send off for Boris Karloff so until then folks this is Eric and this is Jeff and we like to tell you all to stay shiny everybody have a good one next level, next level, next level.